Thanks for joining us today on BIV Today from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief here with journalists Haley Wooden and Tyler Orton. This podcast is part of a series of interviews that we're doing with major party leaders for the 2020 British Columbia election. For this podcast, we welcome Andrew Wilkinson, liberal leader and MLA for Vancouver Colchena. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, the, the Premier has argued that an election was needed to provide political stability in the pandemic. Why do you disagree? Well, there is a signed agreement between all of the NDP members and all of the Green members, plus Andrew Weaver, to govern until the next fixed election date. And the Friday before he called an election, uh, John Horgan called the Green leader, Sonia First down to his office and tore up the agreement and said he's going to breach the law and the fixed election date that he passed and off we go to an election. So the whole issue becomes, can you trust John Horgan when he's so completely ambitious that he's prepared to act like that? What would have happened, do you think, in the year to come had this covenant stayed in place? Well, I think, you know, that back in March, we said as a party, it's time to fight the virus, not each other. So through the summer, we were very positive and supportive of the efforts of Dr. Henry and the people of British Columbia to get the virus under control. And British Columbia has done pretty well until very recently. And that was the goal. The second layer of this is the economic recovery plan. We voted in favor of the big budget boost in the summertime and expected the uh, funds to flow to assist business in this uh, beautiful province to survive. And because all the other provinces put theirs out in June and July. And lo and behold, John Horgan waited until the Thursday before the election call to say, here's the program. He <clears throat> ignored the, the advice of the BC Business Council, ignored the advice of the Vancouver Board of Trade, ignored the advice of the BC Chamber of Commerce, came out with a plan that doesn't amount to much. And as has been reported in the media this morning, almost nothing has flowed of those funds because it's caught up in the necessary bureaucracy because John Horgan has completely stalled government. And let's be clear, the stall will be for the 33 days of the election, plus another 28 days to get a, a party sworn in, plus the time to count postal ballots. So we're looking forward to almost three months with no leadership in government. They just keep the wheels turning. And so these funds are not flowing out, as was documented in the media this morning. Haley? We know many businesses are struggling, including small businesses. What do you and your party intend to do to support those small businesses? Yeah, I think we're the only party talking seriously about small business support. It comes in three layers. First, eliminate provincial sales tax completely for a year and take it to 3% after that. That will be a huge stimulus because things will go on sale. The average family will save $1,720, and it's a regressive tax. So people at the lower end of the income spectrum uh, do better under that plan. And it also provides small businesses with a boost. I was in a sports store in Terrace yesterday, and they said they can't wait for the PST to go off because it will boost their business and bring things back to a normal cash flow for them. We've also said, let's abolish the small business income tax. That'll give every small business up to $10,000 of new working capital to hire people, to invest in the business, to get themselves online, which is increasingly a mandatory thing in small business. And a third thing we've said is our tourism hospitality sector is in dire straits. Most of us know somebody who's a flight attendant, a pilot, a hotel worker, a restaurant worker, tour operator. These people are facing a ruinous winter because there's simply no tourist activity going on. So we've said, 
they've asked for, we're the only party that says there's going to need to be bridge financing to keep them in business over the winter to be ready for the reappearance of the tourism market next summer. Tyler? Yeah, let's go back to hospitality and tourism. Uh, You mentioned the bridge financing, but what is going to be the key to ensuring the long-term survival of these industries as the pandemic puts a squeeze on everything from international travelers to British Columbians' own desire or even ability to go out? This is a very, very important point you make because this summer there was the staycation phenomenon. So the tourism sector in the Okanagan did okay on southern Vancouver Island, it was the worst summer ever. The hotels are completely empty because they count on American tourism to come in and enjoy themselves. Whistler did okay sporadically, but way below normal revenue because I think we all know that the domestic market, uh, to put it simply, doesn't buy souvenirs. The spend from the domestic tourist is about 30% of the international tourist per capita. So that is a huge hole in the tourism industry's um, cash flow. We talked to people in the bear viewing industry in May and they said it's totally ruined their season because the international tourists had to have all their deposits returned. No business whatsoever this summer and they've got some fixed costs. So they say, are we even going to survive until next summer? So we've got to make sure that these providers, these operators have the ability to operate again next summer and also through the winter because there's quite a lot of winter tourism as well that we know about. And I think we all know the ski hills are going to have a very rough time this winter. So that bridge financing, reducing their income tax payable and taking PST off just about everything is the only way that we can look forward to some kind of economic plan going forward. And similarly, we say, you know, that we don't see anything from the Greens or the NDP to support this sector. And there are hundreds of thousands of people in British Columbia who work in the sector. One of my relatives had a job at a wilderness lodge that completely vaporized in May. She was unemployed all summer. Haley? It's been argued that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted women. What would your party do to support and encourage the equal participation of women and other groups in the economy? And I think we all heard the news from Statistics Canada in about July, August, that they had coined the term a she-session. And they pointed out that the most dramatically affected uh, group in our society were women working in small companies at the lower end of the income scale. So we heard that loud and clear and said, well, how can we make it possible for that large um, population of people in our society to get back into the workforce as soon as they can? And one of the key things that came up was access to daycare. Because if you're in the lower end of the income spectrum, your job is tenuous or has disappeared entirely, you wanna make yourself available, what are you gonna do with the kids? So we said it's time for any family of the household income of less than $65,000 to have guaranteed $10 a day daycare, not the NDP plan, which provided 2,000 spots out of 100,000 under a federal program, not their program. They completely broke their promise about daycare. And in this crisis, in the next year, we have to deliver affordable daycare or we're going to have a whole uh, cohort of our society who are marooned who are stuck in this vicious cycle of can't afford daycare, can't afford to work, can't afford not to work. We've got to do better than that. So that's why we're um, supporting the idea of very heavily subsidized daycare. Under $90,000 of household income, $20 a day. Under $125,000, $30 a day. But under $65,000 household income, no matter how many people are in the household, it's $10 a day for daycare. Tyler? 
We're dealing with the impacts of climate change. We, we see it over the summer, of course. Uh, we also have an economy that is facing dire straits. In your opinion, though, is oil dead? Well, oil is not dead because we have about 3 million motor vehicles on the roads of British Columbia still using oil. But I think we've all heard from organizations like Shell and BP that they are expecting to phase out their oil production and their share prices are reflecting that. And so we have to start thinking on a longer horizon for the phasing out of oil in our society. We have to start, obviously, with transportation because our electricity is all clean and green hydro. But transportation is a major goal for us. We talked about getting more electric vehicles out there. There's going to be increased demand for electricity. So let's start planning for that post-oil era right now. The NDP love to put faraway numbers on things and say zero emissions in 2050. We're talking about very practical things to say we've got to get more electric charging stations going. We've got to encourage electric transportation. That's both light trucks and uh, family vehicles so that we can be ready for that post-oil era and actually anticipate it and, and enjoy the process rather than fight it and resist it. Oil will be part of our society for a long time, become part of Canada's international trade profile. But in terms of the domestic economy, let's get ahead of the game. Let's get wind and solar going. Let's get increased electricity capacity. Let's improve our grid and let's make electric vehicles a reality. Um, Andrew, we're moving through a phase of spending right now to support people and businesses. And I think there's been you know, only modest amounts of dispute about how that's going. But at some point, all of this has to subside. How do you think governments will need to go about paying for this? Yeah, and this is another key question. Uh, I think we all know that the U.S. government has put about $20,000 U.S. per person into the economy. That's a stunning amount of money. They have a $3 trillion debt from this year alone in U.S. dollars. That's about $28,000 per person in Canada that they've put into their economy. The federal government by midsummer had put about $11,000 per person into the economy. And with our PST cut, we're talking about $1,400 of additional input into the economy. So we think that's a prudent amount in a dire circumstance. I've said this is a bit like a wartime economy. Governments can borrow at extremely low interest rates right now. So that has to be our goal, is to run responsible deficits to get us through this. And I've said recently that once there's a vaccine, we have to have a five-year horizon to get ourselves back to a balanced budget. That has to be a fundamental goal because you can't just carry on with deficit spending forever, especially when you're a province rather than a nation. So that's the goal. But at the same time, we can't be cutting off the kind of social services that are needed by the people I see in the park every day when I go for my morning bike ride. Two or three old motorhomes, people sleeping in them because they run out of money. This is not the time to cut off their ability to get rent supplements and get back on their feet and get into the economy. We've got major unemployment issues, about 11% in the lower mainland. We heard that 15,000 construction employees lost their jobs in September in the greater Vancouver area, according to StatsCan. So there's a lot of work to do, and we're going to have to invest in ourselves by doing things like the Massey Tunnel replacement, get that construction project going right away, a second hospital in South Surrey. Let's get going right away because we need that stimulus to keep people employed until we can get through this and get back to economic growth. But where will the revenue come from? Oh, it has to come from economic growth. I mean, we've had a $250 billion economy in British Columbia for a couple of years now. It continues to grow with population and with our prosperity, except now. So we have to say to ourselves, as we did in 2008-9, how do we get through this? We don't just accept we've got a trajectory downward. We've got to say, how do we build this economy to get it going upward? 
And at the granular level, things like tourism depend on the return of international travel for prosperity. But things like construction, we can do that in and of ourselves. And that's an important thing to keep our economy rolling along. We've also seen volatility in things like lumber prices. I think it surprised all of us when they went up dramatically in April and May because there is this kind of home renovation frenzy going on in the USA. So the prices went way up. That was a very good thing for a part of our economy. And it's often said that if you're in groceries or bicycles, you're having the best year of your life. If you're in tourism, it's the worst year of your life. So we've got to make sure we're taking care of those sectors that are in a temporary trough because they will get through it. We will get back to growth. And we have a very robust society here. We have a very, very diverse small business sector in British Columbia, which is pretty resilient to uh, challenges. It's, we're not like Alberta, which is heavily dependent on the oil business. We're not like other provinces with highly concentrated economies. Ours is very diverse, which is a major strength. Andrew Wilkinson, good to talk to you. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks and all the very best. And we'll hope to have your support in the coming days, whether you vote in the advance poll or on the 24th. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Our series is also going to feature interviews with BC NDP leader John Horgan and with Green Party of British Columbia leader Sonia Furstenau. And a reminder from all of us here at VIV, no matter your preference, no matter if you vote in person or by mail, please vote. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for joining us today.